Well, good morning, DSBC. How are you? It is so good to be back with my church family here at Desert Springs. It is, thank you. You know, it is hard to believe that seven years ago, standing on this stage, I passed the baton to Caleb, and I'm so thrilled with what God has been doing since that time. You know, I love you. I love here. And uh, a lot of you wonder, like, well, what are you doing? How's retirement going? Uh, well, first of all, I'll let you know when I get there. Uh, like I told you seven years ago, uh, I'm not retired. I'm working full-time for Phoenix Seminary as the director of church partnerships. In short, I'm pastoring pastors. And so most Sundays, I'm somewhere else. Like right now, I accepted a position again at Bethany Bible Church to be their uh, interim preaching pastor and also working with their board as they're trying to address some issues of just challenges that they have. Because Bethany, the church that started this one, has been declining pretty substantially over the last several years. And so we're looking, how do we re-energize? How do we reinvigorate uh, that church? And so I, do, I would really invite you to pray with me. We're considering a merger with another church that is in the sort of a Bethany grandchild with Phoenix Bible Church. And I have the privilege of sitting in on those conversations. But as you can tell, I think there's a need for incredible wisdom. And I would ask you to pray for that, for that leadership, and for me uh, as we proceed through that. But, you know, today we're here to continue in our conversation about and teaching in the book of Exodus. That's what Caleb asked me to come and talk about, and I'm thrilled to do this. And so I want to know, I'm not going to ask you to show hands, but I'll bet everybody in the room would know if I mentioned the word Titanic you would be able to tell me what that's about. Maybe not the date. You might not be able to say in 1912 there was this ship and it was an unsinkable ship and it's going across the North Atlantic and it plows into an iceberg and begins to tragically sink at the cost of 1,500 lives, basically. But I'll bet you that very, very few people in the room could tell me what the name Carpathian means. Carpathian's another ship. It was the rescue ship that came. There was a, the SOS that goes out from the Titanic shortly after midnight on that fateful night, and the Carpathian was, was four hours away, gets that call, and diverts their direction to start making its way to, to the site where the Titanic had plowed into the iceberg. And for four hours, there were people in lifeboats and clinging to debris and flotsam in the water, not knowing whether any rescue sign had gone out or not, but yet it had. And this other ship, the Carpathian, begins to make its way through those ice flows at peril to themselves. And they were used to rescue over 700 people. So that loss of life of 1,500 could have been a third again as great. Could have been over 2,000, over 2,200 people. Now, the people that were in the water, they didn't know that help was on the way, but it was. And so in the study in Exodus, we also are looking at a group of people that don't know that there's help that's on the way. It's been promised, but it hasn't gotten there yet. They may feel a lot like some of us in this room this morning feel. People who may be dealing with different forms of temptations or bondage. It might be, it might be bondage to various types of uh, temptations like substance abuse. It's like, is there any help? How can I make it another day? This one day at a time thing, this one step at a time thing, I don't get it. Where's the power come to be able to address that issue and to have victory in that area? 
You may be struggling in financial areas, and you may be even more fretful when you see that inflation's going up above the 9% level, the highest it's been since 19, early 40s. Or in Arizona, we have one of the highest inflation rates in the entire nation with a CPI of 12%. That may be causing you to be fearful and wonder, is there any help on the way? How can I make it? How can I put food on the table? How can I put gas in my car? The other day I gave somebody some gas money and, and I gave them a hundred bucks. That bought about $2 worth of gas. <laughs> I mean, that seems to be where it's going, right? What a, what a hard thing to do. There's so many things that we feel like we're in bondage to. and We have no way out, but the good news is helps on the way. And we learn that historically when we look at the, the children of Israel in a book by the title of Exodus written by Moses. And the whole book of Exodus is about deliverance. But it's a deliverance at this stage in the book that is promised. We stand on this side of history looking back and seeing that it had been delivered. We know the rest of the story, so to speak. They didn't. And so for a moment, let's try to put ourselves in that position of men and women who have been promised help, but they haven't realized it yet, just as many of us are experiencing perhaps today. One of the things that we're going to see from this passage especially in the section that Caleb looked at last week, is in Exodus 5, 22 through 23, that waiting is tough. Waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise is oftentimes really frustrating and confusing, isn't it? When it's been promised but it's not arrived yet, we wonder, is it really coming? Or are we cynical about it? Do we question God's goodness, his presence, his wisdom, his power, his ability to do anything? Or is it just some pipe dream? So that's where the children of Israel were. He said, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people, bringing calamity on them? Why have you ever sinned me? What he did was he went to Pharaoh. He said, Let my people go. And Pharaoh made it harder for them in their enslavement. Not only did they have to make bricks, they had to go out and gather the straw to make the bricks. So he's saying, Look, I tried to do it your way, and it got worse. This is what Caleb talked about last week. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, that's, that's gutsy for someone like Moses to have that type of relationship with God, to lament and to complain to God that you're not doing anything at all. Have you ever been there? I have. And I'm thankful that God allows us to be able to come to him and vent our spleen, so to speak, to let him know what's really on our heart, because after all, he already knows the words that are on our mouth before we speak them, doesn't he? He knows the thoughts that are in our head before we even think them. So who do we think we're fooling? I love the relationship. I love the candor that's here. And God doesn't slap Moses around. He didn't chide him for being human in this thing. Instead, in verse 1, he says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This is all what the Lord is going to do through the strength of his might. And it's still a promise. And this is where Caleb was at the end of last week. But we pick this up in context that he's talking to the Israelites. Remember, if they seem to be impatient to you, they have been in slavery for over 400 years. Depending on the person you talk to, depending on the historian you look at, or the theologian, 
between 400 and 430 years, they had been enslaved in the land of Egypt. Hardly sounds like God's people of choice and his blessing. Can you see why they're frustrated at this point? It causes me to wonder, and I look, and I think it's ironic, perhaps providential. When I think of the history of slavery of African Americans in this country, it stretches about the same period of time, 400, 450 years, depending on the starting point. Certainly well before 1776. There was slavery in Jamestown in the 1600s. Look at how long that was and how frustrating. And you look at a lot of what's called the Negro spirituals, and you look at a longing for deliverance. You look at a longing for exodus. If you, if you read much of the civil rights leaders worked so much time, those pastors that were involved in that spent time in the book of Exodus. Do you see why? Longing for justice, longing for racial equality. But it was slow in coming and is slow in coming. It's interesting that before 1865 in Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, you had other people that God was raising up like a Moses and a Frederick Douglass, a slave himself who was escaped. And it became a strong abolitionist speaking for the issues of the abolition of slavery. You have a civil war that's fought. But then you have a hundred years later, even after the Emancipation Proclamation, before there's the civil rights movement in the 60s. And we begin to see some movement in that regard. And it continues on today, doesn't it? The point is, waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise is often really frustrating and confusing. Can we we admit that? Can we say that that's the state of who we are as people and understand in all these different things? There's There's a book I really appreciate called Disappointment with God. It's written... Um, by Philip Yancey. If you've never read it, and if you're struggling, especially, I'd suggest you get it. It's been around a long time, but a disappointment with God. And he talks about a guy who came to him whose name was Richard. And as Richard began to unfold his story, it seems he was a theology student at Wheaton College and Wheaton Seminary in Illinois. And he had submitted a paper on the book of Job. Now, Richard had gone through a lot of stuff that was difficult. As a young man, as a teenager, he watched his parents split up and everything he tried to do to help them stay together seemed to fail. He went through a failed relationship himself where his fiance, the love of his life, unceremoniously dumped him. He went through a lot of physical challenges. He went through different questions and challenges of his faith as he saw things he couldn't put together. And he writes this paper on Job and his professors tell him, this is awesome. You really ought to make a book out of this. And so he did a manuscript, and he calls Philip Yancey, and he says, I really appreciate your writings. Would you be willing to sit down with me and look at this and and tell me what's, what's good about it and what's not, what needs to change? Well, long story short, the book gets published, and everything looks like it's going in a great direction, except sometime later, Richard calls up Philip Yancey. He says, I just need to meet with you and let you know. All that stuff that I wrote even though it's been acclaimed, all that stuff I wrote, I don't believe anymore. And it's because of the disappointments he had with God. Like a young man that's very close to me said, I feel like God never showed up. 
God just didn't show up. I did this, I did that, I didn't do this, I did this, and, and yet I just can't make sense out of this issue. God didn't show up. Sometimes when that answer is delayed in coming, or we don't even see it on the horizon, we, don't, we wonder, is help really on the way, or am I just making this stuff up? Am I just believing something I want to believe? Don't you see that that's where these people probably were? And yet God comes back and he reiterates his promise. And this is something that's helpful for them and for us and could have been helpful for Richard as well. And that's this. Remembering who God is, his character, and how he has kept his promises in the past can help us to trust him for the future. I'm trying to get this. I'm becoming impatient with Well, anyway, that's, that's what it is. Okay. Why won't this work? Well, for you, of course. Just don't get impatient, Rick. Wait for the promise to be fulfilled. There you go. All right. It was just fulfilled, right? It's a sign from God. What I'm telling you is right. I am, if I'm lying, I'm dying, right? Okay, so here we go. You will remember anything else. You'll remember that. What's it say in Exodus 6? Look in verse 2 and through 5. Then God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I've also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians held as slaves, and I have remembered the covenant that I made with them. Therefore say to the people, I am the Lord your God, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So what he's doing is he's looking back and reminding them of who he is and the promises that he has made in the past. Now, what we're talking his covenant that he talks about here, we find in Genesis chapter 12. Listen to what it says, Genesis 12, 1. It's known as the Abrahamic covenant for obvious reasons. God is speaking to whom? Abraham. So hence, Abrahamic covenant. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse, it literally says. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. What are the promise that he made to Abraham? I will make of you a great nation. Now at this point, Abram's name was Abram, which means father. Later on, God reinstitutes this covenant with him and renames him to Abraham, which means father of nations. And the irony is Abraham's not a father at all at this point. So God's asking him to trust him, to walk in faith. But he's reminding them of the covenant that he made with Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, and you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And the one who blesses you, I will bless, and the one who curses you, I'll what? I will curse. So what you're about to see and the plagues that come upon Egypt 
are a result of that promise to Abraham and to his descendants. That because Pharaoh had cursed and not dealt favorably with the Israelites, that the wrath of God is going to come down upon him. And that's yet to be said, but God's saying, I haven't forgotten, I remember, I will do it, and it will be by my strong arm. Now, he also speaks to the nature of who he is. He talks about, in the past they knew me, and most of the statements in the Older Testament are God Almighty, El Shaddai. The Lord Almighty is the name that was there. But he says at least six times in this passage, he reminds them who he is, Yahweh, I am God. A simpler way to put that is, he is God, we are not. Do you get that? That's the problem that Satan had when he got kicked out of heaven. That's the problem you and I have when we think we know best. We need to remember, he is God, we are not. We work on his timetable, not ours. According to his means, not ours. Because he is God and we are not. That's in essence Yahweh. I am the eternal God. I am the personal God. And he speaks to that, and he wants to give them those things so that it can provide comfort in the present times. You know, there is a book that's been very helpful for me recently, and I've taken some different people through it, some business leaders and some small groups. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. If you've never read this, I would strongly encourage you to get a copy of it, read it. Maybe it'd be great to do with your small group, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And he talks about one of the reasons we don't pray is we have given into cynicism. Listen to what he says. These are just sort of cherry pick some things here. He says, the opposite of a childlike spirit, which is what he said we need to have to be effective in our prayers, is praying to our Abba Father, have a childlike spirit of trust and dependence. The opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. Cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. Can you see that? I see it all over the place. I see it in my own life. I see it in society. I see it in the news. Cynicism is the dominant spirit of our age. And it's the water we swim in, so to speak. And if we're not careful, it's what will shape our thinking. It was true of them as well. He says, cynicism and defeated weariness have this in common. And listen, they both question the active goodness of God on our behalf. Can I say that again, just in case you're gathering wool or sleeping? Cynicism and defeated weariness have this in common. They both question the active goodness of God on our part. Whether that was the Egyptians and the Israelites or whether that's you and me, is that not true? We begin to question because things don't seem to be getting better. That God knows, that God cares, that somehow he's hidden, somehow he's, he's not aware. Sometimes maybe he's impotent to do anything. So why even pray? Well, one of the things that he talks about in the book, he talks about the importance of a psalm, reading the scriptures and allowing the word of God to shape our thinking more than the culture and the spirit of cynicism in the world in which we live. And for instance, Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. He's trying to tell them, I'm with you. 
I'm right here. I know. I care. And I will do something about this issue. Kathy is a person that, that Paul Miller talks about in his book who was struggling with this issue of cynicism and about to give in to the temptation of cynicism until she came to this conclusion. Both the child and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The cynic focuses on the darkness and the child focuses on the shepherd. Listen to that. The cynic focuses on the circumstance, on the darkness, on the difficulties, on the hardships. But the child of God focuses on whom? The shepherd. For you are with me. Where's your focus today? Where's my focus? When the anxious thoughts well up within me, am I focusing on the circumstances? Am I focusing on the challenges? Am I focusing on the frustrations? Am I focusing on the impatience? Or am I focusing on the one, Yahweh, I am. The same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who is still alive today and still works for the benefit of his children. Where's my focus? Thankfully, Kathy focused on the latter. And she said this, cynicism feels more like bondage to me now. She was in that bondage before, that mindset, but she said, recognizes it, that that's a form of bondage. Jesus sets me free to love by showing me the dark and often self-serving agenda I cling to in my cynicism. I am well aware the journey is far from over, but I am learning to live in hope. I just need more practice. What a great statement. She hasn't arrived yet like none of us have. But there is hope for the journey if we focus on the Good Shepherd, if we focus on Yahweh, if we focus on El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. Remembering who God is and how he's kept his promises in the past, because God had kept his promises up to this point for the children of Israel. But even though it had been 400 years, he wasn't through with them. So God promises to do something, to powerfully deliver his people from the Egyptians. And you see this in verse 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. He's God. We're not. He reiterates his promise. Didn't you notice how oftentimes he said, I will, I will, I will, I will? This is not Moses doing it. This is God doing it. Moses happened to be the human agent of what God was about to do. Here are his promises. He says, I will bring you out from under the present yoke. Again, we're on this side of history, and we see that it's already been accomplished. They don't know that yet. They only have the promise of God. But I'm going to bring you out. He says, I will deliver you. Remember, Exodus is a book about deliverance. 
I will redeem you. Here's a big part of the whole thing with the Passover lamb and the blood of the Passover lamb providing a a redemption, purchase of these people so that they would be his people and go out as his people. I will take you to be my people. I'm not just some arbitrary, distant God. We have a personal connection is what he is saying. The same that Jesus promises to you and to me of who we can be in him. We are children of God. We are his sons, his daughters. We are brothers. We are sisters. We are part of the same family, the family of God. This is not a religion. This is a family. I will be your God. Do you notice how progressively personal this becomes? God's saying, I'm I'm taking this personally. What Pharaoh is doing, he's not going to get away with. Pharaoh thinks himself to be a God. I'm going to show Pharaoh he's not really in charge. All of the different gods of Egypt, I'm going to take down one by one. And that's what happens as the book of Exodus unfolds, is it's a polemic or an argument against the false gods of Egypt, like the Nile that God turns into blood like the bull that God kills the livestock, like the sun, which God calls to be dark. Right down through the line, every one of the plagues is a direct affront to to God because he alone is God. And God is saying, look, you want to play on your home court? I'll take you on your court. And the reason is I want you to know there is no God but me. I am the only one true God. And of all these people, he wants the Israelites to know that and act on that basis. God also promises deliverers for Christ's followers. We see some great promises, and again, history shows that God delivered on those promises. But but God gives us promises today. We are children of faith. We are sons and daughters of Abraham in that sense. As God credited his righteousness or his faith to be righteousness in the same way, God credits our righteousness in the person and work of Christ, as you saw evidenced in baptism today. He also calls us to be his people, and he says, I'm going to promise you some things. So this is for us. This is not ancient history. We may not have experienced them yet, but they're God's promises that he will fulfill to us. Let's just look at some of these. In John chapter 16, Jesus says this, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. He promises to provide us his peace along with his presence and along with his power. He never promised us that life is going to be easy. So sometimes when we get angry with God, we're saying, God, why did you let this happen to me? I got another question for you. I've heard people say this when they've been experiencing cancer and other types of things. Instead of asking, why me? Why not me? You see, that's a false mentality to think that when I choose to follow Jesus, my life is going to be a a, a heavenly highway. There's not going to be any bumps in the road. There's not going to be any potholes. There's not going to be any difficulties or challenges. Friends, God never promised you or me that we wouldn't have problems in this life. In fact, he predicted that we would have. 
But he said we can have peace in the midst of those problems because he has overcome the world. Another way that we look at this is he's promised to limit our testing. Actually, that is the, yeah, that's the next one. We look at testing, and what does it say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? It says that God is faithful. He says that he will never allow you or me to go through something that he will not give us the power to overcome. He will limit the testing. And one of the ways he sometimes limit the testing, if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, God has a higher estimation of my ability than I have. He will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Are we looking for that way of escape? Maybe it's a different choice that he gives us the power to make. Maybe it's a different person he wants to have in our lives. Maybe it's a different way of thinking. Maybe we need to remove ourselves from some of that testing, which is within our power. You see the point? God says, I'm going to promise you, I will never let you. I'm going to limit what you go through, and I will never allow you to go through more than you and I together can handle. And if you can't handle it, I'll give you a way of escape. The question is, do we have the faith to believe that, and do we have the courage to trust him in that? That's a promise of God. He also promised to be with us, which is massive, Philippians chapter 4, 13. Anybody know what that says? We oftentimes see it on athletic shoes and athletic equipment. I can what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's empowerment. That's the next one. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. But these two tie together. Go back to the Hebrews 13, 5. You don't have to look it up. I'll look it up and tell you. It's a good book. I mean, he's talking to the Israelites, right? So Hebrews seems like a really good book for us to look at. Hebrews 13, 5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with whatever you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whoa. He's promising to be with us, but the context he's saying The context is money. Did you notice that Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, is also the context is money? I've learned to get along with a lot, and I've learned to get along with a little. In whatever state I am, I've learned the secret, and that's to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Wow, both of these statements, Christ is with us and Christ empowers us, has something to do with our finances. Every other area of life, too, but it was just curious to me that in these passages it has to do with finances. What happens when we go through uh, all of these types of things? Uh, again, I'm jumping ahead on here. I'm going to go ahead and pull up the next one. Well, I guess it's not there. Sorry, let's forget that for a second. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. What is that saying? Here's a promise of God. He does not promise to shield us from the difficulties of life, but what he does promise is the difficulties of life, if we respond to them appropriately as men and women of faith, that he will use those difficulties to create spiritual maturity in us, that he will create endurance within us. He will create hope within us, which is what Romans 5 says. In other words, we do have to go through hard times as the Israelites do, but are we allowing the Spirit of God to do his work? And we pray to be have those removed from us, and that's understandable, but are we also at the same time praying, God, I want to learn from this. I don't want to waste this situation. I want to be the man. I want to be the woman that you fully intended me to be. I want to be more like Jesus. Let me ask you this question. None of us wants to be sinned against, do we? None of us wants to be shafted. But do we want to be forgiving? I hope so. Was Jesus forgiving? You and I should want. How do you learn to be forgiving? By being shafted. By being abused. By being sinned against. We can't learn it. We can learn about it, but we can't learn it experientially apart from going through those things. Do you see how this bad thing becomes good in God's economy? I've often said God is in the recycling business. He takes our garbage and makes something good out of it, something useful out of it. And that's one of his promises is to produce character. And finally, James 1.12, the same passage to give eternal life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. We need to remember this world is not really our home. We need to be here. We need to work to make it a better place. God has us here. We need to be his stewards, his managers, all those things. But this is not our ultimate destination. We need to be living with eternity in view. And we need to persevere with eternity in view. That's the blessed hope. It is the coming of Jesus, but it's the coming of Jesus to usher in eternity. That's the hope that we have. Friends, that's the picture of what is possible if we lock into these promises. God promises to limit our testing. He promises to provide his peace in the midst of testing. He promises to be with us. He promises to empower us. He promises to produce character in our lives. And he promises that what we do in this life matters for the next one. And we trust him in that. That's the picture. There is a, a woman, her name is Ruth Myers, and Emily and I have given away cases of this little book called 31 Days of Praise. It's just different scriptures that direct us to praise God. Do you know how this book came about? It came about out of great travail in her life. Let me just tell you what some of that was, because she says it in her words in the foreword. This book has been in the making for years. It was born during my years as a widow. It flowed out of truths that had motivated me to trust and worship the Lord in various seasons and experiences in my life. As a single girl in my native land, as a young wife sojourning in Taiwan, in the Philippines, and Hong Kong, during my first husband's months of intense suffering with cancer, 
before the Lord called him home, by the way, at the age of 32. During my years as a widow with two small children, she says, yet at the same time I found bright rays of sunlight shining into my heart. How grateful I was to the Lord for his many blessings. Does it sound like she had a lot of blessings there? Yes, she did. And she began to enumerate them about who God is, about the precious children, Brian and Doreen, that, that he had given to her, not the difficulty of supporting them as a widow in a foreign land. For the joys of being their mother, for other people in my life, and for their loving help, for special answers to prayer, and for even small delights such as gazing at a sunset on a unique branch silhouetted against the sky. And even more, the Lord blessed me through the times of worship and praise, often with tears of joy mingled with sadness. She trusted God and chose to focus on the shepherd, not like the cynic would, on the darkness and difficulties. Eight years she served as a widow, eight years raising his children as a single mom, and eight years later God brought another man into her life but only after she was still praising God. Not for the circumstances, because those hadn't changed for eight years. That's possible for the man or woman who chooses to follow Christ and for the child who focuses in on the shepherd, not for the cynic that focuses in on the difficulties in the darkness, the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know where you are this morning, I, but I ask you, stay focused on Jesus. Jesus. 